encourage you to turn to that first passage, Romans 8. Um, if you've been with us before, you shouldn't be surprised at this point that that's a lot more scripture than you usually get, probably in more, most churches, even churches that use a lectionary. I'm not going to apologize for that. I think that's great for us to just kind of saturate ourselves for six or seven minutes just hearing scripture read out loud. But one thing that maybe you notice is a bit different is usually we have an Old Testament reading and a Gospels reading. We don't have either. This is like Apostle Paul overload this morning and uh, Romans, Colossians, Philippians. And because the dynamic that we're going to look at today really explodes, not just in the New Testament, but even after Jesus's death and resurrection. And so it's in Paul's letters and Peter's letters and John's letters that we especially see this um, in this season. Um, and we'll do this until the end of the summer. We'll probably start a new series, which right now I'm actually thinking will be Philippians right after Labor Day. So I think that's the second Sunday in September. So we got another four or five weeks in this series. We're looking at this theme that all of life is in the wilderness, that we look back, we've already experienced the exodus, we've already been liberated, we've already been set free, the most decisive thing in our lives has already happened, and yet we're not in the promised land yet, so we're in the wilderness for these 40 years, symbolically, we're in between, and one of the things we're doing in this series is not just looking at how that's a, a metaphor for the whole Christian life, but also how it's a lens through which we can look at other aspects of the Christian life, and, uh, and so let's look at Romans 8, and I'm just going to set the table with this, and then we'll get into it. Um, some of you, if you've been around churches for a while, you've been in certain circles, this is language that maybe is familiar to you. If it's not, that's totally okay. Even if it's familiar to you, one of my burdens today, so I think this is a category that's not only really important in the Christian life to understand it, but I think it's, it's always in danger of being really abstract. And abstraction is always an enemy to faith. Faith should always be concrete, should always be vivid. We should always have a sense of what it means and why it matters. And so today we're going to talk about this, this reality that through Jesus's death and resurrection, there is an already but not yet tension in the Christian life, that something has already happened. And yet we're also waiting for something else to happen. Um, that for me over the years, I've heard that I went to seminary, I've been in ministry, I've been a pastor for many, many years and decades. And yet it still can very easily be abstract for me. If you want to explain the already but not yet dynamic to a six-year-old, here's the best way to do it. We're not slaves in Egypt anymore, but we're not in the promised land yet. That's the already but not yet. We're in the wilderness. We're in this in-between. In Romans 8, which Josh read for us, this is often considered by many Christians one of the clear high points of all of scripture where the promises of God shine most clearly. There's a lot there that I want us to zero in on just one thing that I'll bet for some of you, you've read this passage a dozen times, a hundred times, and maybe never noticed this before. And we're going to notice that on the surface, it almost strikes us as a contradiction. Starting in verse 14, Paul is clearly evoking a lot of Exodus imagery. All who are led by the Spirit of God, like Israel was through the wilderness, they're the sons of God, just like Israel was the son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Remember, Israel in the wilderness are constantly falling back into fear and in grumbling. They're not pressing forward, but instead you have, past tense, received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And maybe you notice that, that this along with... Um, Galatians are the two places where Paul shows that he has knowledge of Jesus's final night in the Garden of Gethsemane, that it's in all of the Gospels, that on the final night of Jesus's life in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's overwhelmed with agony, he's overwhelmed with fear and torment, and he falls to the ground and he prays, Abba, Father. 
And Paul alludes to that here, that we now turn to God and we say the exact same thing Jesus said to God, because the spirit of Jesus now fills us. And notice what it says is that we have already, past tense, received the spirit of adoption as sons. And so I'm guessing that if, if you're a Christian, if you've been in church for a while, you have a sense that if you're a Christian, you've been adopted. You're a son and a daughter of God. You're not waiting for that in the future. That's already happened. You're already the children of God. We have been adopted unnaturally because we're children of sin, where we're humans who are sinners. We've been adopted unnaturally by God's grace into his family. And so far, so good. It's like, yeah, I, I get that. New Testament talks about that all the time. And yet, notice the next paragraph that Josh read, verses 18 to 25. I'm not going to read much of it, but I want you to notice that the emphasis changes to the future. Language of waiting, of eager expectation and longing, and of hope dominate the next paragraph. And as creation itself is groaning, the spirit within us is groaning. Paul says, we ourselves are groaning as we wait for, and did you notice this? Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. That, that sounds like a contradiction. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons already. We are waiting for our adoption as sons. This is a little tip of the iceberg moment. If you see this, and, and you pay attention as you read the New Testament, this pattern is all over the New Testament. The very same positive thing that is said in one moment has already happened in our lives. The next verse, the next paragraph, it is said, it has not yet happened, and we're waiting for it. It is already, but it is not yet. I want you to jump ahead to Colossians, our second passage. Just trying to start off by just showing you that this is here, and then we're going to talk about what exactly is this, why does it matter, why is this there, but first I just want to convince you that this is all over the New Testament. Jen read in Colossians 3, and, and let's just look at that first paragraph. If then, and this is not like if, this is more like, you know, a, a theoretical, you have been, if then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why should I do that? Because you have already died, Christian, just like you have already been raised up with Christ, and your life is already hidden with Jesus in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears in the future, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, I want you to notice that at the very least, verses one through four say two things. If you are a Christian, you have already died with Christ, and you have already been resurrected with Christ. You're a new creation. You've been born again. The old Nick Nowak that came into the world in 1979 died when I became a Christian. And a new Nick Nowak created, redeemed by God, was raised up with Christ when I was baptized, when I became a believer. And Paul says that's already happened. And yet, look what happens next. Verse 5, therefore, put to death. You have already died, therefore, put to death. Now notice that that doesn't make any sense. If you died, you don't tell somebody to put to death. If you are alive, notice verse 12. Everything in verses 5 through 11 is a call and exhortation to daily put to death all that is still fleshly, all that is still sinful, all that is still earthly in us, and then starting in verse 12 and going down to verse 17, it's a great passage, all these positive virtues that we should grow into, that we should embody as Christians, it starts with, therefore, put on. 
And that's resurrection language. Notice that what Paul is saying is you have already died, therefore die. You've already been raised up, therefore be resurrected. One of the, uh, give, me a, give me a second to be nerdy here. As many of you know, I was an English major in college. One way you can say this, although it's dangerous because it's abstract, is that the New Testament constantly moves back and forth between the indicative. The indicative is the verbal mood of statements of fact. Nick is five foot 11. Nick has brown hair. That's an indicative statement. Uh, uh, an imperative statement is a command. Nick, go get me a cup of coffee or Nick, go do this. And one thing that's so interesting about the New Testament is the very same realities that are described as indicatives then become imperatives. You've died with Christ. Put to death everything that doesn't belong to Christ. You've already been raised up. Be resurrection people. Over and over and over again, one way you've maybe heard it before that I think is helpful, but again, there's a danger of abstraction there, is you could almost summarize in one phrase the entire ethical thrust of the New Testament as become what you already are. Become what you already are. If you want to turn with me a couple of letters back, we didn't read this, but I just want to give you a glimpse of how pervasive this is in the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking about um, kind of the, the complacency and, and, and the stuckness of these Corinthians and how they're, they're allowing sexual immorality in their congregation and nothing is being done about it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If you let sin in, and you don't name it for what it is, confess it, repent of it, it kind of spreads like a contagion. It's, it's contamination. And then he says this, notice verse seven starts with an imperative, but it ends with an indicative. And it says this, you could read this a hundred times and not notice this, just this one verse, cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Do you notice that? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be an unleavened loaf as you really are already unleavened. That's become what you already are. That's an already but not yet dynamic. So much of the Christian life is holding these two things together. Um, one maybe helpful way to frame this, it's not just true of the Christian life, it's true of every area of life, is expectations are really crucial in life. You start a new job and you wonder, like my boss is expecting me to like stick around 86 hours a week. Is that normal? Like, like everybody else seems to be sticking around the office or like, I just feel really depressed and overwhelmed in this situation. Is that normal for me to feel this way? You start a dating relationship and you're just overwhelmed with all kinds of emotions and you're wondering, is this normal to feel this? You're, uh, you, you start feeling something in your body and if you're not a doctor, which I'm not, you begin to wonder like, is this normal for a 43 year old man to feel this? Or am I dying of cancer? Like what's going on here? Like if you don't have a sense of expectations in life, you're going to be easily thrown off. And J.I. Packer has a great kind of narrative um, of his own faith where he said when he was a younger Christian, he was in a kind of church community, was in a Christian community that put all the emphasis on the already. You already have the spirit. If you just have faith, if you just obey God, if you just memorize scripture, victory over sin, triumph, joy, um, 
non-Christians are going to be, come to faith. Um, we're we're going to take over politically. We're going to see the culture transformed. And everything was the already. And he talks about how two years into that, he, wa he wanted to... Uh, he, he just, he felt like he was insane because he either felt I'm a terrible Christian because that's not how I experienced the Christian life, or I'm not a Christian at all. And I just don't have faith, but there's no way I can line up my experience with that. You can go to the other extreme and put all the emphasis on the not yet. And all of a sudden have really low expectations for the Christian life. I, I've, I've shared this often over the years with students. Um, it was especially when I was in North Carolina in college in the Bible Belt, which is where I became a Christian, although you see it everywhere or other places too, that I would often see this bumper sticker on the back of cars. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. And I would always show that to students and say, guys, I think that's a heretical statement. I think that's heresy to say that. And, and specifically, there's one word in that bumper sticker that's heretical. It's not that Christians aren't perfect. That's good theology. None of you are perfect. If you tell me, Nick, I've arrived, I no longer sin, I will rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And when you get married, I will warn your spouse about your profound self-deception. Um, there's, a, there's a great apocryphal story of Charles Spurgeon, the old great Baptist um, British pastor, where he actually, and, and you might know this, there have always been on kind of the fringe of Christian traditions, um, groups that are inclined towards perfectionism. If you just have enough faith, if you just pray enough, if you just see God enough, you can actually overcome sin right now in this life. And Charles Spurgeon met a, a leader of one of these communities in the 1800s, and this guy claimed publicly he had not sinned in six years. This guy claimed. And Charles Spurgeon, you know, he's got a great sense of humor, and he's like, he says, first, I want to ask that guy's wife if she agrees with that. But the second thing is he ran into him in a restaurant one day, and he snuck up behind him. If you ever meet somebody like this, I'm not suggesting you do, I'm not suggesting you do this, but he snuck up behind the guy, he grabbed a big pitcher of water, and he dumped it over his head. And all he says next is great. He says, and the man's reaction showed that the sin nature was still intact. <laughs> it's just a great line. Now, on the other hand, Christians aren't perfect, but on the other hand, the second line says they're just forgiven. The little word just there is heretical. If you say what it means to be a Christian is to be as big of a screw up, to be as selfish and idolatrous and awful as everybody else, it's just as the final judgment. You got to get out of jail free card because you believe in Jesus. I actually think that's a denial of the gospel. That's just not yet. Just like the first part of the statement is just already. And so there's this already not yet dynamic, and we need to hold it together. And over and over and over again, the, the New Testament holds this together. You might do this in the future. It would be a great Bible study on your own or with one another. Every single, whatever you want to call it, redemptive category, salvific category, the New Testament has. Let me just list a couple of them for you. Salvation. If you do a word study of salvation and save and saved in the New Testament, you will see that there are a bunch of passages that say Christians have already been saved. Then you will notice there are other passages that say Christians are being saved, and then you will notice other passages that say we are waiting for our salvation. The same reality, salvation, is described as past in the process of happening in the present and is still to come in the future. Maybe the one that I, I like to share the most because it's, it's the one that I think brings to the surface how much we don't in general get this in our culture is forgiveness. If you're a Christian, you probably have a sense that you have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven in Jesus's name, which is absolutely true. But even just to step back from that, then why do we confess our sins every week and ask God for forgiveness 
if we've already been forgiven. Colossians 3 says, forgive one another as you have already been forgiven by God in Christ. And yet, over and over and over, the New Testament also says, if you do not forgive one another, you will not be forgiven. There is an element of forgiveness that is still to come, just as there is an aspect of forgiveness that has already happened. Redemption, adoption, Romans 8, justification, sanctification, dying with Christ, rising with Christ, eternal life. Every single one of these categories is regularly described as both already having taken place in our lives and as an object of faith that we are waiting for to still happen in the future. And again, this is where I think the danger of abstraction comes. It's one thing to describe that analytically and be like, oh yeah, there's this already but not yet dynamic in the Christian life. But if you had to explain that, like, what does it mean that you're saved and you're waiting to be saved? What does it mean that you're justified and you're waiting to be justified? What does it mean that you're adopted and you're waiting to be adopted? What is the cash value of that? Like, what does that actually mean? This, I think, is where we can struggle with it. And so what I want to do is spend a couple of minutes just trying to flesh out what does that mean concretely that there's an already not yet dynamic in the Christian life? And I'm just going to throw a couple of different paradigms and images at you that I found helpful. One of the most famous in the 20th century, and I've got this book in my office, it was published just a couple of years after World War II, which is where the imagery comes from, great French Christian theologian named Oscar Kuhlmann, and he basically said that what this is like is the difference between D-Day at the end of World War II in VE Day. Now, I know that's a long time ago for all of us now and for some of us. And so D-Day, you probably have a sense. And one reason I always think of this is D-Day is actually my birthday. And so D-Day, I always kind of resonate with. D-Day is June 6, 1944. Up until this point in the war, it looks like the Axis powers are going to win. It looks like Germany and Japan and Italy are going to take over the known world, or at least they're going to win this war. It's going to be disastrous. This is the moment the United States with England and France and a few others land decisively on Normandy Beach and the beaches of, uh, of France in D-Day. And after a couple of weeks, it becomes clear the Allies are going to win the war. From D-Day on, if you had eyes to see just the, the, the tone, the trajectory of the war change, and almost everyone had a sense, now it's just a matter of time. Germany will be defeated. Japan will be defeated. The Allies are going to win the war. The decisive victory has already happened. And yet, the war went on for a few more years. And it wasn't until VE Day in Europe when Germany actually surrendered that the war actually came to an end. And Oscar Kuhlmann says, this is kind of like the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. When Jesus comes 2,000 years ago and he lives and he dies and he rises again, the most decisive victory over evil is past tense for Christians. The most decisive moment in the war already took place 2,000 years ago, and yet the flesh, the world, the devil, they're all still running around. They're all still causing havoc. There is still battles and skirmishes happening, and yet on the one hand, we don't engage those battles with a sense of despair or a sense of maybe even if I'm faithful, God is going to lose this, and I'm going to lose it because I'm on Jesus's side. We have a sense that the war has decisively already been won because of what Jesus has done. And yet we also have a sense that until Jesus comes back, there is still a battle going on. There's an already, but not yet dynamic. Maybe you've heard this, perhaps we'll work it into our order of service at some point along the way. In the early church, one of the mantras, one of the very basic creeds early Christians would recite when they got together is these three phrases, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. 
That's the already, but not yet right there. Something decisive already happened in the past, and yet we are waiting for something decisive still to come. Another way to put it is, and this is very foreign to us as modern people, is the, the scriptures, Old and New Testament, regularly break up history, time, into two ages. This age and the age to come. This age is what Paul calls this present evil age. Satan and sin and injustice and death seem to be the dominant players, and in the age to come, God will rule over the world in justice and in mercy, the, the, his glory will cover the, the earth as the waters cover the sea. His spirit will be everywhere. His presence will be everywhere. And in the New Testament, and if I had like a, a whiteboard, I would draw for you. There's a sense in which the present evil age still remains even right now, but the age to come has erupted and the age to come and this age are overlapping right now. And so if you ask, where are we? We're actually in both periods of time. We're in a period of time where God is not honored, where sin and injustice are normal, and yet we're also those who, in the language of Romans 8, already have the first fruits of the Spirit. And by the way, the Spirit is the key to the already part of the dynamic. The not yet is you don't have a resurrection body. You live in a world that dishonors God. Your own flesh still rebels against him. Satan is still on the loose. There's all this not yet out in the world. But insofar as you are a Christian and you have the spirit of God, listen to some of the words that the New Testament uses for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the first fruits. That's an ancient agricultural image that's often there in the Old Testament. The first fruits is just the beginning of the harvest temporally. It's not the whole harvest, but it is also at the same time, the guarantee that the rest of the harvest is coming. The spirit is the guarantee, the down payment, the earnest, the foretaste, of something greater coming later. And so the spirit is the presence of God's future already at work in our lives. If you have your bulletin, go to the beginning and let's look at this quote by Gordon Fee. And there's a word here that I regularly kind of cringe at because it's not a word that we use in our culture anymore, but I do think it's kind of an irreplaceable word. This is the second quote on the handout, on the bulletin. Gordon Fee, this great Pentecostal New Testament scholar, says the absolutely essential framework of the self-understanding of primitive Christianity, what he means by that is first generation, the apostles, is an eschatological one. That's the word that I cringe at. I don't encourage you to walk around using that word with people, but eschatos in Greek means last or ultimate. And, and so eschatological refers to something that has to do with the ultimate future. And here's what Gordon Fee then fleshes it out to mean. Christians had come to believe that in the event of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, the new coming age had already dawned. And that, especially through Jesus's death and resurrection and the subsequent gift of the spirit, God had already set the future in motion to be consummated by yet another coming of Christ in the future. Theirs was therefore an essentially eschatological existence. That is, we're still living in the present, even in the past, but we've also got one foot in the future. And so there's a sense in which Christians are living in the past and the future at the same time. That is, they lived between the times of the beginning and the consummation of the end. Already, God had secured their salvation. Already, they were the people of the future, living the life of the future in the present age. And by the way, that phrase is my favorite way to describe what the Sermon on the Mount is. 
if we, by God's grace, through the spirit, would be a church that wouldn't live like Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, Asians and whites and blacks and Latinos, old and young in our culture, but we would live like followers of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount. A community that lives the Sermon on the Mount right now is just doing now what the entire universe will be doing in the future. It's the life of the future lived right now in very hostile, formidable um, environments. And so they are living the life of the future in the present age and enjoying its benefits, but they still awaited the glorious consummation of this salvation. This they lived in an essential tension between the already and the not yet. Now, one word, I'm going to end with this in just a couple of minutes. One word that I actually want to like encourage you about is if you're a Christian, you regularly experience tension in your life. You regularly experience a sense of this is what I should be, but this is what I'm not. And that is absolutely normal. That is in fact unavoidable. Tension is part of the normal Christian life. Being torn in two directions, having a sense of I'm still this broken thing that I was even before Jesus came into my life. And yet I'm also different than I used to be with new desires and some new dispositions. And somehow both of those things are true of me at the same time will be true of you until the day you die or until Christ comes back. That is a normal part of the Christian life. Um, two words that I haven't pulled out in a while, but earlier in this series, I was um, introducing to us and encouraging us to think about is one word is spatial, one word is temporal. It's there in the sermon title today. Helen laughed at me. She's like, that's such a nerdy sermon title, which it is. One word is liminal. Liminal is a spatial word. Liminal refers to when you're neither there nor here, but you're in between. For instance, if you're dating, you're neither single nor married. If you are in med school, you're not me, somebody who knows nothing, but you're not a doctor yet either. You're in between. There is a really good book by an Asian theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary named Sang Hyun Lee called From a Liminal Place in Asian American Theology. And the main thesis of the book is that Asian American Christians in our culture have an incredible resource to offer the rest of the church, which is especially if you're second or third generation Asian American. On the one hand, if you go back to Korea or you go back to China, they immediately notice you're not one of us. But you also have a sense of like, I'm also an outsider still here. And I'm still seen as like somebody who's not quite what other people are in America. You are in a liminal place. And Sang Hyun Lee says, that's what every Christian throughout history ought to be. Somebody who is neither fully there nor fully here. Somebody who's got their foot in both worlds. There, there is this already, but not yet. Um, reality. The other one is a temporal word, inchoate. And I love this word. I love the way it sounds, but I especially love what it means. It's a word that refers to something that's already started, but has not yet come to completion. And so a teenager is in inchoate time. Puberty's already happened, but they have not yet reached full maturity. And in the wilderness, literally the geography between Egypt in Canaan is a liminal space in the wilderness. You are not a slave in Egypt anymore but you are not enjoying milk and honey in the promised land yet. Instead, it's just water from the rock and bread every day. It's a liminal space. It's also in co time. It's 40 years that are better than the 400 years in Egypt, but not as good as it will get when we are in the promised land. The old Puritans used to like to say that it's grace and glory. If you are a Christian, you have already experienced grace, but you have not yet entered into glory. 
And so grace and glory already and not yet. Real quick, and then I'm going to end with just a couple of like, so what? Like, like, if this is true, how do we posture ourselves? What are some practices we lean into? But probably, at least for me over the years, one of the really big questions this always raises is, why is this a thing? Like, why not just go all the straight to the age to come? Why not just raise us from the dead, get rid of some? Why does God work so slow in our lives? Why does he work so slow in our lives? Why doesn't he just rescue them from Egypt and four days later, rather than 40 years later than in the promised land? Why is the wilderness such an extended process, such a slow time in between the already and the not yet? And I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that I haven't thought of or that I'm not aware of, but here are the two reasons that always stand out to me. The first is patience and mercy, because the world isn't ready yet. The Apostle Peter says, and it's just a good basic conviction for us as Christians, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. If we jumped right now from the already and the not yet came to fruition, that would be bad news for the world, for everyone who is currently outside of Christ. And so God gives the world time to respond to the gospel. He gives the church time to be on mission and to announce that Jesus is Lord. C.S. Lewis has a great line, I think it's in Mere Christianity, that when the author walks out on the stage, the play is over. And so do you long for Jesus to come back? You should, but you should also have a sense of the time he gives us is grace and mercy for the world. The second reason is this, and this one's more direct for us, which is the wilderness, and this has been a big theme in the series, is a place of testing, not in the sense that God doesn't know what's in your heart, but in the sense of formation, that we're already out of Egypt, but we are not yet a people that are ready for the promised land. And so the not yet, and what do you see there in Colossians? What do you see in Philippians? What do you see in Romans? The time in between is a time to become something that God has only started in our lives. And so it's also about giving us time to become the kind of people who will be ready for the promised land. Don't just see this as something to groan about, although it can be that too. Something that's just frustrating, it is God's patience, it is his mercy, it is his good purposes being worked out in our lives. Okay, last couple of minutes. This is where I want to hopefully really get concrete. What does this matter? Like, I don't, the goal today is not that you go home and you can be a little more nuanced in your theological framework than other Christians who've never heard of the already not yet or who don't have language for that. What does this actually mean? And I just want to list off a couple that I've thought of over the years. Here's the first one. Because something already has happened in your life and in our life, but we are also not yet experiencing something and waiting for something. Therefore, when we read scripture, when we gather together, we should have ears for and be postured and open towards both God's promises and his warnings. Many Christians, I've even seen this, probably all of you have, that you kind of find like a bookmark that lists all of God's promises, and you just isolate them from scripture, and you're just like, I like all this positive stuff. Look like I'm already this, and I'm already this, and this, and this, and this, but there's a whole lot more than promises in scripture. There are warnings, and insofar as something decisive has already happened in your life, you ought to cherish God's promises as already being true in your life. And yet insofar as you have not yet entered the promised land, you ought to hear God's warnings that, and this is one of the big themes in this series, that what happened to Israel in the wilderness when they grumbled, when they disobeyed and they turned away from God, 
would happen to us if we turn away. We need to persevere until the end. Um, and, and a mentor of mine years ago had this little dictum, this little formula that I find so helpful and concrete. He said, you do not need to doubt God's warnings in order to believe his promises. And you do not need to doubt God's promises in order to believe his warnings. And I think psychologically, a lot of us do that. We're like, because the promises are true, there is nothing I need to be warned about. There is no sense of urgency, no sense of if I do A, B, and judgment will happen. Or you hear the warnings, and then you just hear those. And you just hear, if I persevere, if I'm good enough, if I believe, if I trust, and there's no promise, there's no grace. And again, this is one of the big themes in a series that there's grace and there's danger in the wilderness. And so another way to put it is if you are a Christian, you should be so aware all the time that your own flesh, the idolatry of the world, the temptations of Satan are an hourly, daily reality that you need to be reckoning with. And on the other hand, and probably for a lot of us, this is maybe the one we need to lean into a little more, that the claim of the gospel, the already, is that the same power, the spirit of God that raised Jesus bodily out of the grave 2,000 years ago is already at work in your life. You've already been raised from the dead. That you are already someone who has gotten out of their grave spiritually, relationally, and power and life are already at work in your life. And you need to hold on to both of those things at the same time. When the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, somebody else, I don't know who the writer is, but whoever wrote Hebrews in Hebrews 11, the two main metaphors that the New Testament uses for what happens when somebody becomes a Christian is creation out of nothing and resurrection from the dead. That's already happened in your life. When you're like, imagine if you were just an observer, which is already a contradiction in terms of, but imagine you're an observer moments before Genesis 1 happens, and all of a sudden there's nothing, and then bam, there's an entire universe. That's crazy magic. That's unbelievable. And Paul says, that's what happened in your life when you became a Christian. Imagine if you saw somebody who died, and three days later they got out of their grave. That has already happened in your life. It has already happened in your life. And yet we are also waiting for our resurrection from the dead and our adoption as sons. The second thing is this. Um, it, it's true in every culture in the history of the world, but I do think it's probably fair to say that our culture is a little more prone to this than many others. We actually actively go in this direction that we fret and we are stressed about current events all the time. You might go home today and immediately turn on the news. You might go home and immediately get on Twitter and start doom scrolling. And then the rest of the week until you come back next Sunday, you're just constantly fretting over all this terrible stuff that's happening in the world right here, right now. I don't at all wanna downplay the awfulness and the injustice that is still there, that not yet is still there. But here's something that should be deep in your intuitions if you're a Christian. The two most decisive events in the history of the world took place before you were born and the other one will take place after you die. That takes a lot of pressure off of what's happening right here and now. Whatever happens during your lifetime, for better or for worse, on the one hand, it will not be the end of this present evil age. No social activist will ever accomplish that. On the other hand, no matter how bad it gets, it will do nothing to prevent Jesus from coming again to raise people from the dead and to bring the kingdom of God. The load-bearing weight of history is in the past and in the future, not in the here and now. That ought to give Christians incredible freedom 
to be free from anxiety, to be free from fear. And it's why I always like to say that two of the most important spiritual disciplines that we have at our disposal as Christians is remembering and anticipating. That every day you ought to step back. If you're in the wilderness, every day you ought to remember it is crazy that we're not slaves in Egypt anymore. That is amazing. We should be celebrating it. And on the other hand, you remember, we're not going to be here forever. Milk and honey in the promised land is coming. And if you are forgetting Egypt and not anticipating the promised land and the wilderness comes to define everything for you, the wilderness isn't the wilderness anymore if it's not what you got out of Egypt for and what you're heading to the promised land towards remembering what God has already done, looking forward to Psalm 130, waiting for what the Lord will do in the future ought to be central. T.S. Eliot says in one poem, fare forward, you who think that you are voyaging, because you are not those who saw the harbor receding, and you are not those who will disembark. Here, between the hither and the farther shore, while time is withdrawn, consider the future and the past with an equal mind. And that sense of the most decisive thing, the ship embarked thousands of years before any of us came along, and Jesus won't bring it to shore in any way connected to our agency here. There's just a sense of always looking back, always looking forward. And if we don't practice those spiritual disciplines, we will be blown around by the wind like everybody else with, you get excited because this happens, you despair because that happens, and none of those things are the decisive moments in history. And so third thing, and I'll just wrap this up in, in the next couple of minutes, is the entire Christian life, at some point in the next few weeks, we'll do an entire sermon on this, we haven't done it yet, is the wilderness reminds us, and it's easy for Christians to say this, it is very difficult to live this out, that we are pilgrims, that we are sojourners, we are strangers, we are resident aliens, we are outsiders, we are those who are on the way. One of the reasons scripture constantly says, with respect to money and economics, with respect to seeking satisfaction rather than just what you need, one of the reasons scripture does that is because it understands we're on a journey towards somewhere else, and you don't, you know, you, you travel lightly when you're on a journey. You don't put all of your hope on what you're going to experience on day two of a long car ride when you know there's three more days to come. You're looking forward, and you're remembering, I'm not where I used to be. And so neither despair nor presumption. Despair is, I'm never going to get to the promised land. Presumption is, I'm already there. Neither of those is true. Already but not yet means the basic posture of Christians is not despair, and it's not presumption, it's hope. And on the one hand, hope is such an incredibly important thing to flourish, to thrive. On the other hand, let's be honest, none of you, none of us, me included, wants to live by hope. You want to go home and have every desire you have ever experienced satisfied right here and right now. And you will not. You need to live by hope. And so there is tension. The normal Christian life is not, on the one hand, just constantly losing to sin, but it's also not finding that as you go, it just gets easy and you're always just very quickly and very without effort triumphing over sin. It's about faithfulness in the midst of temptation and struggle. And to put it this way, and I really want to say this to you with a sense of it's good news, even though there's probably something in each of us like, Nick, I would love for you to just tell me that this is not true. As a Christian, as someone who's already come out of slavery to sin and death, but who has not yet been risen from the dead, until Jesus comes back, you will be riding the struggle bus every day of your life. And that will never end. 
You will find the Christian life hard. You will find it goes against the grain of your instincts. You will find that it brings you into suffering, doesn't just take you out of suffering. You will find that I want to do this, but I do this instead. That is part of the Christian life. And yet you should also notice that the spirit is already at work in our lives. There's already newness of life that we are experiencing. So last two things. There's a phrase that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 6 that I think sums up the emotional experience of a healthy Christian better than any I know of. And he says this, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. If you are always paying attention to right here and right now, and you're forgetting the past, and you're not looking forward to the future, you are probably ping-ponging back and forth between crazy exaltation and crazy depression, depending on what's going on in your life. And you're just going back and forth. And here's Paul saying, every moment of every day in the wilderness is sorrow with joy. It's fascination with what God has already done and frustration that there's still so much of the old left. It's celebration and lament. It's mission engaged in doing things for God's kingdom now, waiting for the future. It's expectation and restraint. It's joy and self-denial. If you are a Christian, you ought to have a pretty complex emotional life. You ought not to shy away from one side of the spectrum because there's this already, but not yet. And so the, the most straightforward way I can put it is this, the not yet of the Christian life hovers over everything you will ever experience. You will never have an experience in this life that is quite what it ought to be. You will never have an experience that the not yet doesn't pervade and infect and, and hover over with some brokenness, some experience, some, some reality um, that you're experiencing, some motive, some hope that the not yet hovers over everything. And so there's always sorrow in the Christian life. There's always a sense of, oh, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet, I also want to say this, the already equally pervades every single experience you will ever have. The already hovers over everything. There is never pure despair in the Christian life. There is never pure tragedy and catastrophe. There are always silver linings. There is always God's grace presence present. There is always his people with us that the already hangs over everything. And so with respect to all of this is more about our experience, our posture as we follow Jesus. Here, I want to send us out with a sense of mission. What are we supposed to be for the world? And my favorite phrase, it comes from a guy named Richard Hayes, for what the church is supposed to be, and it comes out of the already but not yet, is the church is supposed to be here and now in this present evil age where everything is still broken and it looks so often like God is not working. The church is supposed to be a sneak peek of coming attractions. The church is supposed to be a foretaste of what the whole world will look like in the future. C.S. Lewis uses, and it's funny, for how popular C.S. Lewis is among American Christians, this one very rarely gets brought out. But at the end of Mere Christianity, he says, Christians are, and this is his analogy, are like the latest stage of evolution. They're ahead of the curve. My way of saying that is, guys, we're the X-Men. 
The future has already arrived and we are already living it. We are supposed to be here and now what is coming for everybody else in the future because the spirit is already in our midst. And you cannot do that if you don't have a real sense of expectation, a real sense that the spirit is here. Yes, in the midst of the old, but nonetheless, the world has changed since Jesus rose from the dead. And so in Psalm 130, since we started there, what do you have? You have a people that are already named Israel, already redeemed, already belong to God. And yet, as they celebrate that, as they know that assurance and that promise, the main thing they are told is to wait on the Lord and to hope in him. We need to be able to have this dynamic to live the Christian life well.